Greetings, my friend. When you mention the movies you hold near and dear, do other people run away from you really fast? Sometimes it seems as if I belong to a different world. We invite you to our cinematic science lab in the Mountains of Madness. A rest stop for those who like their films with double extra cheese. The Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. What kind of place is this? It's a safe haven from summer blockbusters. A refuge from the reboots, remakes, and regurgitations of Hollywood. But be careful. Once you've stepped into this dimension of demented directors, you may not want to step back out. Don't try to escape your character. There is no way out of here. Because all you of Earth are idiots. And now, your guide to this episode's journey through the junkyard of Hollywood. Professor Stanton Gearhart. Hello once again. I am your partially mechanized Master of Ceremonies, Professor Stanton Gearhart, and I bid you welcome to episode number two of the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat, where you can take shelter from the multi-million dollar mediocrities of modern Hollywood and explore the bizarre, obscure, and downright cheesy films of past and present, those movies that entertain in ways their creators never intended. And for this episode, uh, we have a movie that, uh, well... Have you ever been watching a film and you recognize uh, an actor or a performer from some other completely different discipline, such as television or um, music, whatever the case may be, and it's sort of, sort of a, hey, it's that guy sort of experience? Um, you don't see it that often nowadays in movies because the TV stars and the movie stars, they're all kind of sort of interwoven, but a lot of the TV stars um, that came out of the golden age of B-movies, the 50s and 60s, or the golden age of television at that time, those shows, um, got their start in low-budget flicks. And we're actually going to explore a movie that has a double dose of this. Um, it's a little slice of drive-in gold from 1939 called The Killer Shrews, uh, directed by Ray Kellogg. And it, only, it not only manages to pack a whole lot of craziness into its compact 69-minute running time, but it also establishes itself as the Dean Martin, or perhaps maybe Foster Brooks would be a better term, of monster movies. Um, it'll make sense as we go on in our discussion. Uh, in any case, let's go ahead and uh, give you a trailer here. Looks like a small rat. Shrews as small as rats, perfect for scientific experiments, until they began to grow and grow into things. They must eat three times their own weight in food every 24 hours or starve. There are two or three hundred giant shrews out there, monsters weighing between 50 and 100 pounds. That's as big as a full-grown wolf. <laughs> Blood-curdling, horrifyingly poisonous monsters. 
with the livestock. The shrews got into the barn. The wildest of flesh eaters, threatening all mankind. Your flesh will crawl with fear at their nearness. The shrews were out there. I couldn't take a chance. Okay, so you have some idea of the, uh, at least of the music and uh, some of the sound effects we'll get into later on that were used in the movie The Killer Shrews. If that music sounds familiar, I believe that at a slightly different speed, some of it was used in Night of the Living Dead in 1968. But anyway, for The Killer Shrews, uh, it starts out aboard a uh, boat, a freighter, that's owned and operated by a gentleman named Thorne Sherman. This character is played by James Best, better known as Roscoe P. Coltrane from the Dukes of Hazard. I'm Duke Boyd. You'll be coming by here just any moment now. I can feel it in my bones. I just can't wait to get... And if you're a child of the late 70s or early 80s, as I am, your ears probably pricked right up at the mention of that name. Or of that show. The um, good original show, not the, not the movie that I'm not even going to talk about here. Anyway, he and his first mate, a gentleman named Rook Griswold, who uh, likes to play Dixieland music on an instrument that um, apparently is almost impossible to pronounce. Automatic pilots can't play Dixieland jazz on their engines like I can. I tried listening a few different times and really couldn't make out what he was saying there. They're traveling to a hurricane-threatened island to deliver supplies before the hurricane hits. This island is home to a Dr. Marlo Cragus, um, his daughter, Anne, uh, played by uh, former Miss Universe Ingrid Good, his nerdy assistant, Dr. Baines, their handyman uh, named Mario, and a gentleman named Jerry Farrell. Well, maybe not so much a gentleman. He, uh, throughout the film, he shows himself to be very shifty, very drunk, and very much out for his own interests ahead of anybody else. But uh, Jerry is played by Ken Curtis, who also actually was a producer on this film. And Ken Curtis is best known as the character of Festus from Gunsmoke. Hello, Miss Kitty. You ought to give a fuller warning. A man could have a seizure over a shock like this. And if you were like my dearly departed grandfather, a fan of the old westerns, well, your ears just perked up. That man, oh, he, he could fall asleep in the middle of one western, wake up in the middle of another, and know exactly what was going on in the story, but I digress. Anyway, Dr. Kragus is involved in population control research in an attempt to breed a species of shrew, which is a small burrowing rodent-like creature that will be, that will be smaller and live longer because of a lower metabolism. Now keep in mind that pound for pound, a shrew is one of the most ravenous creatures of the animal kingdom and has to eat constantly in order to survive. This is a point that the movie makes sure to mention at the very beginning. Unfortunately, one of the litters that was bred in this experiment turned out to be mutants that didn't get smaller. Instead, they grew to be 100 to 150 pounds of pure, insatiable hunger. That's about the size of a big dog. 
And since somebody left the cage door open when they were drunk, um, not going to name names, <clears throat> Jerry, <clears throat> um, the shrews got out and rapidly started breeding to the point that the island at this point when we join the story has upwards of 300 hungry giant rodents roaming around since they sleep by day the researchers have to barricade themselves in at night in their adobe house with a wood palisade to keep these beasts out now adobe and wood against a burrowing rodent that's not the best strategy but so far it seems to have worked. Anyway, it's this situation that Thorne finds himself sailing into. Now, the doctor wants Thorne to drop his supplies off and leave immediately with Anne so she'll be safe from the shrews. But it's all but impossible to do this with this hurricane bearing down on them. This doesn't sit well also, well this doesn't sit well with anybody, but it especially doesn't sit well with Jerry who takes an immediate and mutual dislike to Thorne. These two guys, they look at each other, and you can just tell the immediate hostility. So, what do they do? Well, they break out the booze. Mario mixes everybody martinis, and it all goes downhill from there. Now, while they drink, Dr. Craigus explains his research to Thorne, who doesn't know anything about what's going on on the island. He didn't see any shrews or anything when they arrived. And actually, at this point, he's more interested in Anne than the shrew breeding program that the doctor's explaining to him. Of course, the doctor's left out the whole part about the big honking rodents roaming the island. In the meantime, Rook, the first mate, who stayed behind to tie up the boat, has stumbled upon the secret of the giant shrews, but he's eaten before he can tell anyone. Finally, in the midst of the uh, discussion and the consumption of alcohol, Anne breaks down and tells Thorne the truth about the big bad shrews roaming the island. And it's interesting, she seems to get more and more nervous as the movie goes on, in spite of all the alcohol she's consumed. Anyway, Jerry is not happy that Anne has told him any of this, because I think that Jerry would like Thorne to wander out and get eaten. A little added twist to all this is that the shrews were, are venomous. How can they be venomous? Well, the doctor tried to uh, poison the shrews at some point to kill them off, but instead of dying, they absorbed the venom right into their salivary glands. So now they're giant, hungry, poisonous shrews. Might make you think twice about setting out that rat poison next time, wouldn't it? Anyway, one of them finally burrows its way into the house, bites Mario, and kills him. They promptly shoot it to death, and then, over more drinks, talk about what to do next. They throw the dead shrew out over the palisade as a diversion, and Thorne and Jerry take a trip outside to see if it's still safe to go out in the daytime. Now while they're out, Jerry turns his gun on Thorne, tries to shoot him, which then forces Thorne to beat the crap out of Jerry. While they're fighting, the shrews try to encircle them, but they manage to make it back to the house. Jerry again tries to kill Thorne by locking the gate before he can get back into the fence. So, Thorne is forced to climb over and once again beat the crap out of Jerry, briefly toying with the idea of throwing him to the shrews. More drinking takes place, and then another shrew makes it in and takes a bite out of Dr. Baines, and <laughs> this scene is just insane. He actually sits down at a typewriter and types up all the symptoms he suffered from the poison right up to the point of death. <laughs> 
Now, if I were doing that, it would be something like, ouch, ouch, this hurts. You know, as my, as my keys, my fingers just completely lose control on the keyboard. But uh, what he typed up is fairly coherent. At this point, the food supply of the island has dwindled to the point that the humans are now under direct around-the-clock attack from the shrews. They start to burrow through the adobe of the house, which has been weakened by the rains associated with the hurricane. Finally, out of sheer desperation, Thorne comes up with an idea. There's these four great big chemical barrels out um, in the compound, and he lashes them together to make a tank of sorts, cuts out little isolates for them to look through and everything, and so they could duck walk in the barrels to the edge of the water and then swim to the boat in safety. And, by the way, conveniently enough, giant shrews can't swim. Everyone likes the idea except for Jerry, who at this point is just completely fear-crazed. He, he's fear-crazed, he's drunk, he just doesn't care. He decides to stick it out on his own. He gets up on the roof of the building with a gun and figures he can fight them off. Well, what do you think happens at this point? Jerry becomes the latest helping of Purina Shrew Chow, but Thorne, the Doc, and Anne, they all make it uh, out in their little Flintstone tank to the beach, swim to the boat, and the movie ends with Thorne and Anne canoodling as Dr. Craigus preaches more about population control. And so, this looks about as ridiculous as it sounds. So now, we'll take a little look at the history of the film and call film history class into session. The Killer Shrews is an example of what is called a regional film. Uh, regional films were never m really meant for nationwide release, but would play in the drive-ins and small-town theaters of a given region. In the case here, it was Texas, although the Killer Shrews actually did do some nationwide business uh, because of the good local response. And typically, they were part of a double bill. The directory of the Killer Shrews was a gentleman named Ray Kellogg, who worked in the special effects department at 20th Century Fox from the late 40s through the mid-50s. His most notable film of the period um, in this capacity is probably the classic The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951. In addition to The Killer Shrews, he also helmed a couple of other regional films in Texas, including The Giant Gila Monster, which usually played with The Killer Shrews on the double bills at the drive-ins. And then he went back to Hollywood to become a second unit director. Of some note, he worked on movies such as Cleopatra and Tora, Tora, Tora. So at, at one point, you know, he did work on some quote-unquote legitimate films. Although I hate that term because, you know, what film isn't legitimate? The movie was shot in a hurry over the course of six days. James Best stated in an interview with Psychotronic Video that things were so rushed during the shoot that one time a set was built and painted and they'd shoot the scene before the paint was dry so they had to be careful not to touch the sets. And the uh, dogs that they used to play the killer shrews were coon dogs that weren't really disposed toward chasing the actors like they were supposed to. So they'd catch a raccoon keep it in a crate, and drag the crate through the woods to create the scent trail. Then the actors would follow the scent trail, and then the dogs would follow the same path. The budget for the film is estimated by the Internet Movie Database at about $123,000. Now, that's the only figure that I could find. 
But it turned a tidy profit, taking in a million dollars at the box office, and is actually considered one of the most successful regional pictures. It ended up, as I said before, getting national distribution because it had done so well locally, and even did some business overseas. And um, it also received the ultimate honor for a film of this stature. MST3K lampooned it during its fourth season, and the episode is a very good one. We'll get to that a little bit later. Now we'll go ahead and analyze and analyze what I liked and what I didn't like about the movie. Actually, there's a lot that I like about this movie. This film is a very good, bad film. It fails on a number of levels, lighting, music, effects, and so on, but it still manages to maintain a certain intelligence to it. By and large, actually, the plot bears a striking resemblance to a film that almost a decade later would give birth to the modern horror genre, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Think about it. In both movies, our heroes are trapped in a small, difficult-to-defend space, they fight amongst each other, and they're under siege by ravenous monsters outside that will stop at nothing to break through and devour them. It's just not done very well here. The script is laden with tasteless stereotypes such as Rook Griswold and the uh, Hispanic handyman Mario, and even though that type of racism wasn't surprising in a film of this vintage, that still doesn't make it right. I don't know how much time was spent developing the particulars of the script, but it does have the feel of a story that was thrown together in about three days. Some of the things that happen just don't make any sense. For instance, there's a scene where one of the shrews has gnawed its way through the wall and is about to come in, and they push a sofa across the hole. Okay, this rodent just chewed through a wood palisade and a thick adobe wall. Do you really think it's going to be stopped now by a couch? But in spite of this, the story is very good at playing by its own rules. It doesn't change things around or manipulate the plot to meet its own ends. Uh, what I mean by this is there's no miracle, no deus ex machina that swoops in uh, to save the day or is melodramatically discovered to rescue our heroes. It's established early on in the story that they're on an island, and we know that the shrews can't swim and those big metal barrels have been there all along. So while the scientists are pontificating and wringing their hands over all this trouble, it takes the outsider, in the form of Thorne Sherman, to come up with a solution that really anyone with a measure of resourcefulness could think up. Instead of coming up with something that the audience could roll its eyes at and be like, seriously, that's what you're coming up with? That's ridiculous. This comes across as something that could actually work, given the circumstances. The acting is largely better than average for a hero for a movie of this sort. Um, while Thorne Sherman on paper could be a fairly bland hero, James Best does give him a certain edge, a, a world weariness, if you will, that brings you over to his side almost immediately. On the other hand, Ken Curtis makes Jerry's character a drunken prototype of Harry Cooper from Night of the Living Dead. He's equal parts angry, cowardly, and sullen and, in the case of, of Jerry, drunk. Nowhere is this more evident than the scene where he tries to lock Thorne out and leave him to the shrews. It's almost as effective as the similar scene in Romero's film, where Harry Cooper tries to lock Ben out to be eaten by the zombies. But there's another aspect of this film that sort of ties it all together, and I've been hinting at it this whole time. 
and it's strange that no other review I've read of this film seems to have caught it. It's not unity against a common foe, or triumph over adversity, or whatever the case may be. No, actually, the glue that holds this film together, pure and simple, is alcohol. That's why I mentioned Dean Martin and Foster Brooks at the beginning. Everybody is drinking all the time, and it crosses all boundaries. For instance, there's a scene at the beginning whenever Thorne, who at this point doesn't know about the full situation with the shrews, starts heading for the gate to leave. And Jerry grabs him and punches him to keep him from leaving. And the very next scene, the two of them are sharing drinks as they argue. Everybody drinks, but the only one who gets visibly drunk is Jerry, so I guess he's the 50-cent drunk of the crowd. But still, I... I can't imagine anybody even being able to move by about the halfway point in this film because everybody is just drinking. It's like that film that uh, was actually shot and produced. I think you can find it on io9.com or on YouTube. It's called Drunk Trek, and it's a sci-fi film that was basically written, shot, and acted while completely inebriated. It is hilarious. But in any case, in the movie that we're talking about right now, you can tell that they're desperate whenever they block a, a hole in the wall with the liquor cabinet, because it's really almost as integral to the story as the shrews. And that brings me to the title characters of the film. The movie's portrayal of these ravenous rodents earned this film both a nomination for the Golden Turkey Award for Worst Rodent Film of All Time, and its own episode of Mystery Science of the Year 3000, as I've already said, and both honors are well-deserved. Very simply put, the killer shrews are nothing more than medium-sized dogs with shag carpet remnants glued to their backs and these ridiculous fanged rat masks over their snouts. And even when the shrews are supposed to be at their most ferocious, they just look like big, playful dogs that happen to have rugs draped over them. And for any close-up shots, it appears that the filmmakers used a big, beady-eyed puppet of what's supposed to be a shrew's head, gnawing away at everything in sight, and emitting a noise that sounds like Dino from the Flintstones hopped up on meth. Really, it just plain doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. It's laughable, and that's what I can imagine happening at the drive-ins. I mean, whenever this was... Uh, originally shown in drive-in theaters, I could just imagine a wave of laughter washing over all the vehicles uh, watching this film. The sight of the character screaming and recoiling in fear at the sight of these poor dogs in drag could have hardly had any other effect on the audience, really. But at the same time, there's an earnestness there that does make you want to play along, if only out of pity. If this movie were made today, the shrews would likely have been soulless CGI creations instead of these practical effects. So in a way, I prefer what Ray Kellogg came up with here. It's clear that he's doing his best with the resources he has, and I can see what he was trying for, although he does fail, he does fail spectacularly, and that entertains me. So, where can you buy the killer shrews? Well, actually... You don't really have to buy it. You can find it online uh, at archive.org, on the Internet Archive. You can also stream it on YouTube. And But if you do want to add it to your collection and uh, have a tangible copy, 
Um, you can find them usually on Amazon and eBay for as little as a dollar used. And uh, sometimes you can also find it bundled with uh, its drive-in co-feature at the time, the giant Gila monster, or some other B-movie of the era. There's also a pricier version that includes restored and colorized versions, but I'm never going to recommend a colorized film. That's a rant for another time, but just suffice it to say that that is something I am totally against. I don't believe that films originally shot in black and white should be colorized, and we'll leave it at that. You can also find the Mystery Science Theater 3000 version in the Volume 7 box set released by Rhino Home Video. But those box sets do not come cheap. But you can also rent the single disc through Netflix. So in conclusion, while MST3K gave this movie the needling that it so richly deserved, it's also pretty good for a laugh when viewed in its original form. As I mentioned at the beginning, it's only 69 minutes long, so it's very tidily packaged, very compact. It doesn't really waste a whole lot of time. Um, so it's if you want a good example of drive-in fare um, that is good and cheesy, you can't do... Well, you could do far worse, I'll put it to you that way, than the Killer Shrews. It's not the funniest or most entertaining of the schlock era by any means, but it's still worth the few bucks that you pay to add it to your DVD collection if you take that route. So let's all raise a glass, whether it be wine, a glass, a shot glass, or otherwise, to the killer shrews. Instead of thumbs up, we can give this film a bottoms up. And that's it for this episode. As always, this is Professor Stanton Gearhart signing off with the words of a film critic much wiser than myself. Learn to go and see the worst films. They are sometimes sublime. We'll see you next time here at the Clockwork Cardiac Bad Movie Retreat. Before I go, just a minor correction, folks. The Killer Shrews was not made in 1939, as I'd said, although you probably already figured that out from the context. It was actually 1959. Sorry about that.